Welcome to the LSE Events Podcast by the London School of Economics and Political Science. Get ready to hear from some of the most influential international figures in the social sciences. Hi, everyone, and um, welcome to this public event. A very warm welcome. Um, This is the event on leveraging moments of change for pro-environmental behavior transformation, hosted by the Department of Psychological and Behavioral Sciences at the LSE. My name is Ganga Sridhar and I'm Assistant Professor in Behavioral Sciences. It's a real pleasure and an honor to be hosting Professor Lorraine Whitmarsh today. Lorraine is an environmental psychologist who's now based at the University of Bath. She specializes in perceptions and behavior in relation to climate change, energy and transport. And she's got a massive span and breadth of research projects, including studies of energy efficient behaviors, waste, smart technologies, electric vehicles, low carbon lifestyles, habits, narratives, polarization, I can keep going on, um, but I'll stop there. It's just to give you a sample of the range of research that Lorraine does. She's the director of the Center of Climate Change and Social Transformation CAST, um, and she's helped the prestigious European Research Council starting grant on low carbon lifestyles and behavior spillover, and now holds the ERC Consolidator Grant on understanding and leveraging moments of change for pro-environmental behavior shifts. One of the reasons I really do look up to Lorraine is apart from her academic work, she's also been very actively involved in climate policy and regularly advises and works with governmental and other organizations as well. For instance, she's the lead author of the um, Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change Working Group 2 on Behavior of the IPCC. And um, last month, um, she was awarded the member of the Order of the British Empire. I think I've got all of that right, the MBE in recognition of her amazing work. Um, I'm really delighted to welcome Lorraine today as I've personally been inspired by and have learned from a lot of her research over the years. From being student and now faculty, I've come to realize that any difficult question I have on the psychology of climate change, Lorraine probably has a really cool research paper on it, which has really pushed the bar of what we know about this issue and also actually how to apply them in real world contexts. So your research is also so fascinating, widely regarded by our students here. So my MSc in Behavioral Science students have actually come together to watch the lecture together and hold a big discussion afterwards. So a big shout out to you all and thanks for attending. Welcome to all the other guests as well. Some minor housekeeping rules before we start. This event forms a part of LSE's Shaping the Post-COVID World Initiative. And the Twitter hashtag for this event is hashtag LSE post-COVID. This event will be recorded and available if all goes well as a podcast. It lasts for an hour. Lorraine will be on stage for around 30 minutes, after which we'll have a short conversation and take questions from the audience as well. So please do type your questions into the Q&A box. You can also vote to push up questions you think are interesting. And that's it for me. Over to you, Lorraine. A big welcome. Ganga, thank you so much for that warm welcome. And there's no way I can do all that justice. You were far too generous, but thank you. And thank you everybody for being here today. I'm really, really delighted to be joining you and talking about uh, my research and look forward to uh, any questions and comments you have about it. Just to kick things off, uh, we have a little poll to get you thinking about this subject. So uh, we wanted to to know what you thought about kind of COVID as a moment of change. So hopefully the poll will come up. Um, There it is, thank you for that. So yeah, are are there things that you're doing differently since the beginning of the pandemic compared to before it? it? So I hope that makes sense. So things that you're doing now that are different to pre-COVID, and so you've got some options there around new hobbies, work practices, socializing, et cetera. And there may be other things that you're doing as well. But um, yeah, click one of those options and let's see, let's see which one uh, is the most popular. Okay, hopefully you've all had a chance to, to choose one of those. Can we see the results, please? Okay, all right, interesting. So over half say two or more of the above which were new hobbies work practices online socializing and of those three new work practices more working from home is uh, is one of the most popular ones as well so yeah interesting and that really fits with what we found in our research is that covid has not only disrupted lifestyles in in hugely negative ways and, and enormously um obviously dire uh, consequences for so many people but actually in many ways there have been good things coming out of it for some people and um, most people have said that some of the changes that they've experienced during the the pandemic they actually do want to retain some of those things and working from home is one of the most most common ones so 
good to good to see that reflected in the audience today. Thank you for that. Um, I'm not only going to talk about COVID, but that is one of the things I'm going to talk about in my talk. So um, hopefully you can see see those slides uh, appearing now. Um, I want to talk about net zero social transformations more generally, but, but specifically about the idea of moments of change and how there might be particular times when it's more um, appropriate or more effective to intervene to try and reshape people's lifestyles. Um, but the, really the background is that we do need not incremental change to address climate change, but societal transformation. That's clear from the IPCC's work and, and, and many other studies that, that we really are talking about a radical systemic change, uh, as Frank Hales puts it, involving alterations in the, the overall configuration of transport, energy, agri-food systems, entailing technological change, policy change, market change, practices change, etc. So many areas that will and, and that are interlinked that will need to be reconfigured. And a key part of the transformation we're talking about is to behavior and lifestyles. And uh, a recent report by the Hot or Cool Institute has modeled uh, the amount of change needed to uh, for people's lifestyles if we're to stay within a 1.5 degree C future. And we're talking about in the UK, an average carbon footprint of eight and a half tons where we are at the moment to uh, needing to be two and a half tons of carbon uh, dioxide equivalent. Um, and so that's in the next eight years, we need to get from eight and a half to two and a half. So an enormous change that we're talking about. Um, and one of the things that we've been doing recently within our center, within CAST, has been to look at how transformation occurs, and we're not the first to do this. So we thought we'd do actually a systematic literature review of how transformation, um, specifically to mitigate climate change, has um, occurred in the past or maybe currently occurring. Um, and so we identified almost 200 uh, journal papers that, that looked at this subject. Um, and we coded that, um, and this was led by my colleague, Brendan Moore. We, we coded all these different papers and, uh, in terms of, amongst other things, triggers of transformation, drivers and barriers. And what we found was that, broadly speaking, policy comes, comes top in terms of the, the triggers for transformation. Um, and they're also the top in terms of drivers as well as barriers. So policy, government, the sort of top down, actually, the framework in which um, societies operate actually is, is critical in terms of uh, transformation happening, but almost as important, at least in terms of the drivers of change, are social structures, attitudes, behaviours, practices, um, all the sorts of things that, that I'm sort of interested in, really, what people do and what people think. And, and they can be an incredibly strong driver, as we're going to see in terms of creating the conditions for transformation and, and driving that transformation. Um, businesses, markets, other things also quite important too, as you look down the list. So that, uh, lots of things are really critical for transformation, but, but government and behavior are really key. And just building on that point, actually, the, the Committee on Climate Change um, uh, estimated that about 60% of the measures needed to reach our UK carbon targets will, requ will require at least some degree of behaviour change by consumers. So they included things like buying electric vehicles, installing heat pumps in our homes, cutting down on red meat and dairy, being less wasteful, etc. Um, now, those sorts of measures are the thing sorts of things that consumers can do. But we're not only consumers, and this is I, I like this um, model that Nielsen and colleagues um, recently published, which looks at the multiple roles that we have. We're not only consumers, we're also citizens, we're investors uh, often, we are organisational participants, in other words, we might be employees or employers, we, we, we have a workplace. Um, we are role models in a, in a more general sense, and that might comprise being a parent or a member of a community um, or a neighbor. So it, through the conversations that we have with people, through the interactions, through the influence that, that we have, uh, we can exert, you know, we, we, can, um, we can influence others. And, and in, these, in these five roles, actually, we need, to, we need to change our behavior. We need to do things differently. We need to use that influence to 
both directly and indirectly reduce emissions to tackle climate change. So although 60% of the measures might involve consumer behaviour change, actually probably all of the measures needed to get to net zero will require a broader uh, definition of behaviour change. And that disruption to lifestyles and to society more generally means that we need to engage with the public. Engagement is absolutely critical. We need to bring people with us. Um, and actually that engagement and that more participatory type of policy making has been found to be uh, more lead to more effective policy making as well, because you, the more you involve different perspectives and the more you incorporate sort of lived experience and so on, then the more likely you are to have workable, effective policies. So the rise of citizens' assemblies and citizens' juries is a really key part of that and giving a, a stronger voice to, to people in the transition that we're talking about. Um, well, the good news is, given that we are talking about a radical uh, societal transformation, that actually the public uh, is at, is very concerned about pub, uh, about climate change. That we're at record levels of concern about climate change at this point. So concern has gone up and down um, in 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 the past. But what we've really seen since about the end of two thousand and eighteen more or less after the publication of the IPCC's 1.5 degree report, where it really put in very stark terms then that we have a very short amount of time in which to make some radical changes to society, um, that since then we've seen public protests, we've seen um, declarations of climate emergency, we've seen, we've seen the language of climate change shift to, to talking about climate emergency, climate crisis. And this is then also reflected in public concern. So a lot of the polls show that we're now at maybe sort of 80% plus saying that they're very worried about climate change. Um, and so uh, about nine or 10 months ago, uh, in a UK poll, we found that um, nearly three quarters agreed that if individuals like me do not act now to combat climate change, we will be failing future generations. And similar proportions said governments need to act and businesses need to act as well. Um, so there is an acceptance that people have to change what they're doing. It's not just about um, governments and businesses changing. We have to play a role in that as well. And it was interesting, as we've been sort of tracking attitudes over the last couple of years, that concern hasn't gone down during COVID. We had predicted that we might see um, the immediacy of the pandemic sort of displacing worry about climate change. Um, but actually, it hasn't. It, it, it's um, climate change concern has actually grown, if anything, over the past couple of years. So that's I think that's interesting. It provides some sort of um, uh, a context in which the public actually do want action on climate change. And um, they also support many of the measures needed to get to net zero as well, which happy to talk more about that. But to move on to specifically behavior change and how we actually achieve that, because we know that there is often a gap between concern and action or people's intention and their behavior. And so how can we close that gap? How can we actually get people to change their behavior to the extent that, that they um, feel that action should be taken to, to tackle climate change? Well, we very broadly categorize behavior change interventions into downstream versus upstream interventions downstream are where you're influencing individuals' choices directly. So this is usually information provision in one form or another. So it might be advertising or campaigns, or it might be labels, um, or it might be even sort of providing information at the point at which somebody is making a, a decision about what to eat in the case of this, um, this excerpt from a, a National Trust menu where they were trialing putting CO2 information against different menu choices. Um, to see, you know, you, so that you can see something like a lamb stew has a much higher carbon footprint than uh, than something that's vegetarian. Um, and so that sort of information can be quite influential, at least for some people who uh, for whom climate change is um, a, a very important issue and for whom maybe they haven't already made up their mind about what they want to eat and they uh, they're, they're open to, to changing what, what they choose. But Actually, we know that usually people are influenced by a lot of different factors. And so information about climate change specifically will not tend to be the most effective way of uh, the most or it won't be the only thing that, that shapes people's behavior. And so in the absence of upstream interventions, downstream tends not to be uh, very effective. 
what we do need to do is to influence the context in which people act. So we need to change um, the environment. We need to make low carbon options more attractive, more, uh, more affordable, more available for people. So we're talking about economic measures. We're talking about changing the availability of products and services, changing built environment, infrastructure, regulation, all comes under this big umbrella of, of upstream interventions. Um, and so, yeah, just to stick with the food example, even just increasing the availability of vegetarian and vegan options has been shown to significantly shift people um, onto you know, choosing more, more vegetarian and vegan foods. So um, that that in itself can be quite effective. But I want to I want to really focus most of this talk around when to intervene. So we, we have a good idea about what we need to do, you know, what, what, what are the hallmarks of good interventions? We need probably some downstream and some upstream com combined. But we also increasingly know that it matters when to intervene because habits are one of the biggest barriers to behavior change. We often are on autopilot with many of the things that we do. We, we probably travel to work in the same way that we always have. We don't think about other modes of transport or other routes even. Um, we, in the supermarket, we may be on autopilot, just always getting the same sorts of products. And in the con under those conditions of sort of tunnel vision, really, it makes it difficult to, to, to get people to change their behavior. It makes it difficult for people to reconsider their habits. And so information, for example, will tend to be ignored and other sorts of um, uh, incentives and other uh, interventions um, that don't actually fundamentally disrupt the context will be ignored. But when, when habits are weakened or disrupted by particular events, um, and that might be something that somebody chooses, moving house or having a new job, um, uh, or it might be something more exogenous that, that they haven't necessarily chosen, a sort of big um, societal disruption like a pandemic, then people are more, um, more aware of um, information and different options. They're more likely to deliberate over different, um, different alternatives. And so your interventions tend to be more effective during that time. And so we, we have been studying um, th this idea, this idea of moments of change. There are particular periods where um, habits are disrupted. And as I say, they can include sort of biographical changes, um, becoming a parent, moving house, retiring, maybe, and those, those would be things that you might, as I say, choose, or diagnoses as sort of, you know, a significant health uh, um, diagnosis or some other sort of personal um, uh, significant event, which might, you might not have changed, but, but only primarily affects you and, and maybe the, a few people around you. D as distinguished from broader exogenous, maybe societal or, or at least local changes to technology, environment, the, the situation around you. And so that might be, say, a workplace relocation, extreme weather events, um, like a flood uh, or a pandemic, as I'll, as I'll come, on to, come on to. So things which are going to be affecting quite a number of people and, and that maybe you don't necessarily have direct control over. But what these things have in common is that they disrupt habits very significantly. There are sudden, a sudden and significant period of change in people's situations. And um, they sort of punctuate lives sometimes into sort of before and after. But there is a critique actually of this idea of moments of change. Um, although you might say, well, you can, in the case of moving house, there's a clear sort of before and, and after, there was a, there's a moving in date. But for many of these sorts of moments of change, actually, even moving house, there'll be a period through which you're planning the move and, and um, you know, deciding where to live and then uh, building up to the actual move date. And then there'll be a period of settling in afterwards. And so actually, the, the, the before and after boundaries do blur. And so the period during which your sort of habit disruption is occurring is, is not always completely clear. And so it does make it somewhat difficult to, to identify um, these moments of change um, and, and actually to think when is the best time to intervene if we're going to actually try to steer people's habits in a particular direction. And some people have said actually moments of change is not very meaningful because it, all of our lives are constantly in flux. So, so some people would maybe dispute the whole idea, but we are still sort of seeing that there are certain changes which are, let's say, more significant than others and might represent particular opportunities for intervention. And this isn't only coming from 
from psychological research or even sort of sociological research, um, looking at sort of practices and behaviors of individuals, but also um, there's research that's looked at societies as a whole and how uh, rapid innovation and, and societal transition occurs at, at a much larger scale. Um, and so there was a nice piece in The Economist um, a, a year or two ago that looked at how global crises are the mother of invention. And we've seen this with regards to the pandemic, that the rapid innovation in terms of not just vaccines, but technological innovation to allow us to have virtual conferences and, and, and um, interactions online has, has radically uh, has accelerated during this period. And we've seen this historically, so that the invention of the bicycle came around as a direct response to um, a volcanic eruption, which led to uh, famine, disease, and amongst other things, the death of many horses. So people's uh, travel uh, options were, were disrupted. And so they had to invent some, some other way of getting around. And there are lots of other cases from history that shows that innovation is often triggered by or accelerated by a crisis. So this idea that timing matters is coming from actually quite a number of different fields and it's converging and, and showing that actually we need to think about not just how to intervene, but also when are the best times. So we've been, we have a, a program of research that's really focusing on this. And, and what we're sort of, our, our, our departure point really is that there's, there's at least two significant elements when we're thinking about say low carbon behavior and what might be important moments of change. So first of all, we're thinking about, well, what's the degree of disruption that we're talking about here? You know, are we talking about disruption just in terms of maybe available finances, or is it also about your social role and your interactions with others? Maybe you have, you're suddenly taking on caring responsibilities, uh, which disrupts a lot of the things you do. Maybe we're talking about infrastructure and technology being disrupted or changed around you, maybe spatial change, where you actually live or work. And in some cases, some certain types of moments of change might involve all of these things, and they're probably likely to be the most disruptive and maybe the most opportune in terms of um, maybe finding ways to reshape people's habits and lifestyles as a whole. But it's not only about the sort of what's happened, you know, what is the disruption and the degrees of disruption, but also thinking about individuals and how they might vary. There may be an interaction between the moment of change, let's say moving house uh, or having a child and people's values and, and what's important to them. And so we've been sort of thinking about how a moment of change might activate a value. And there's research to show that when people move house, it provides an opportunity for people who, say, care about the environment to maybe choose a location that's close to a cycle path or a train station to enable them to travel in sustainable ways. So by um, actually, you know, the, how they how they adapt to that that moment of change and how they steer that moment of change is partly linked to their value and a want and wanting to sort of activate their environmental values if you like for others um, a moment of change might mean actually fundamentally changing their values and, and their and their identity as well um, and so parenthood might be one example there that actually suddenly you have a completely different perspective because you're thinking about somebody else and you're thinking about maybe the next generation and your sort of your your sphere of um, concern broadens and maybe you have just a, a whole new set of priorities that that just changes what you think is important in life and so then maybe environment comes into that or maybe it becomes less important and actually our research on parenthood suggests that there isn't a significant uh, sudden awareness of the environment as being important when you become a parent. Actually, lots of other things become more important. And so it's not a straightforward relationship at that point. But there may also be, of course, times when there is no particular impact on values of a moment of change. And so the closure of a local motorway, it might um, cause you to try the bus or the train for the first time and actually realize this is a much more efficient and pleasant way of getting to work. I'm going to stick with this after the motorway reopens, as, as some research has found. But it doesn't fundamentally maybe change your, your values in relation to environment or to other things. It's simply a more pragmatic kind of, um, I've found a better way of getting to work and, I'm, I'm, but, and my habits have been disrupted, but my values have not changed. So we think it might be important to think about how values play a role as part of these these changes 
we, we've started to do various bits of work um, along these lines. And one of the first things we did was a big evidence review um, funded by the Food Standard Agency, looking at how food practices and routines may be disrupted during different moments of change. And we looked at, at a huge array of moments of change, including all of the sorts of ones that I've already mentioned, as well as things like economic downturns and cultural transitions when you move to a different country and, and various other things. Um, and what we, it was, it, it's very difficult to distill this into a, some neat conclusions really, because what we found was that some transitions involve, or some moments of change involve increasing routinization of food related practices. So you might sort of, there, there might be, um, uh, if when, when you move house and, and move in with, with somebody else, for example, that may mean that you sort of become more living with somebody else, uh, increases the sort of routinization and, you, and, and maybe even becomes healthier or more sustainable for some, but not for everybody, depending on who you move in with. Um, and for others, it may be much more disruptive and maybe much more negative. And so divorce, children leaving home can, can be in, in that sort of category. But I think crucially as well, we found that it really, it, there's no sort of straightforward sense in which certain moments of change lead to more sustainable behaviours. Often it's very difficult to generalise. And so for men, um, marriage may be a, a, a more positive impact in terms of their, their food habits. For women, sometimes it may be less so. Um, for older people, younger people, or people from different cultures, we, we found different things too. So um, it really made a big difference, all these sort of um, contextual factors, actually, and, and individual factors. So it, it really made it difficult to sort of say, well, these moments of change are good in terms of, you know, food practices and these are bad. It, it was, there were much more variation. But I suppose in as far as we made a, a sort of generalizable conclusion, it was clear that these transition points or these moments of change were often very disruptive for people. Um, and so they do potentially represent um, opportunities to intervene. And on that point, there is growing evidence to suggest that these moments of change do represent opportunities to um, actually more effectively reshape habits. So this is from a, a quite an old study now by Bamberg, where um, he gave um, a some specific bus information, um, plus a one day pass to try the bus for free to residents in a German city. And he compared people who had uh, moved house in the last few weeks, the relocating group, to people that had not moved house in the last few weeks, the non-relocating group. And what you can see is um, the percentage of bus use uh, before versus after this intervention. It was a fairly low cost intervention, some information and a one day free pass. Um, and what he found was that actually bus use more than doubled amongst the people who had recently moved house. It was a very effective intervention. So you had all getting on for 50% using the bus afterwards um, compared to no significant increase in bus use amongst those who had not recently moved house. So it seems as though interventions targeted to moments of change like relocation may be much more effective than if they're targeted to times when people's habits are in place, those more sort of stable uh, times. So this is where you know, I think a lot of our research is going to be focused is on is on creating those interventions, um, creating those interventions and timing them to those periods of disruption. But the final thing I want to uh, just briefly talk about is the work that we've been doing around COVID-19 in particular. So this is why I asked you the question at the beginning about the extent to which your own habits may have changed uh, uh, during the course of the, the pandemic. And we've been um, undertaking some longitudinal research with the UK public, an online survey. We've done three waves of data collection that we started uh, in May um, 2020. Uh, and uh, wave three has not yet been analyzed, but we are um, in, the, in the process of doing that. So what I'll just present very briefly is some, some findings from the first two waves. So from May to November, 2020. So you remember May is when in the UK, we had uh, the strict um, restrictions it's still in place. And by November, most of those had been lifted and, and people were um, often back in the office and um, shopping and doing lots of other things. And so what we found was that um, 
In the first wave, compared to pre-COVID, there was a rise in online food shopping. There was a rise in people um, cutting down on their food waste. That was one of the uh, things that we found. Uh, so people were uh, doing things like planning their meals. They were preserving and freezing food to, to reduce their food waste. They were reducing their consumption of various things, most notably clothing and footwear, not needing to go out. People didn't need to necessarily buy so many clothes. Um, and of course, people were working from home a lot more. Interestingly, we also found that people's hobbies changed. And so what they reported doing more of was things like gardening um, and creative hobbies like music and art and so on. And what they were doing less of was things like shopping um, for uh, non-food items. So going to, going to the shops uh, as a sort of leisure activity. Um, and so that makes sense. But what's significant, I think, about some of these things is that these, these activities that people were doing, doing more of during um, that first uh, lockdown period were not only lower carbon, um, but also actually uh, wider evidence suggests probably more psychologically fulfilling. So I'm happy to talk more about that. But I think there's an interesting link there about why uh, a lot of people, when we ask them if they want to continue doing all these things, some of the most people said they wanted to continue doing at least one of the things that they had taken up during lockdown. So uh, over 80 percent uh, cited at least one thing that they wanted to continue doing once restrictions were lifted. So these are the, just as an example of some of the things that we that people said in the survey when we asked them, what do you want to continue after lockdown restrictions are lifted? I'd like to do more online grocery shopping. Um, less entertaining at home, uh, doing more gardening, more cooking and, and other hobbies, etc. Um, spending more time growing vegetables, visiting uh, family garden centres, recycling, etc. Um, so, and, and th this is where we sort of categorised all these open responses that we got. So the sort of leisure and hobbies, exercise, uh, online shopping, thinking about the environment, spending time in the garden and so on were, were amongst the top ones that people wanted to do continue doing after restrictions lifted. Hi, I'm interrupting this event to tell you about another awesome LSE podcast that we think you'd enjoy. LSE IQ asks social scientists and other experts to answer one intelligent question, like why do people believe in conspiracy theories? Or can we afford the super rich? Come check us out. Just search for LSE IQ wherever you get your podcasts. Now, back to the event. Um, when we went back to people in, in the November, as the COVID restrictions had lifted, we did see that consumption started to rise. Food waste had started to increase, in some cases, almost as high as pre-COVID levels. And um, uh, so that was sort of somewhat disappointing that despite some of the sort of intentions that people had, there was this sort of trend back to, or this regression back to pre-COVID um, habits. Um, and you know, homeworking had um, uh, was continuing for some people. Uh, some people were also continuing with online grocery shopping. So there, there were some habits that was that were kind of sticking for some people. Um, and um, I think also interesting that we saw, uh, and as I, as I touched on earlier, that climate change concern during this period was almost as high um, as actually people's concern about COVID. So here shows sort of pre-COVID uh, feelings about the urgency of climate change in blue, the May 2020 and the October 2020 um, levels of, of support for these statements. So the sense that climate change is an extreme is extremely urgent or it has a high level of urgency, most people agreeing with that, but that actually went up during, um, during the first months of the pandemic compared to before, which was against what we would have predicted. Um, but also high levels of support for certain um, net zero policies or policies to tackle climate change. Um, and so this is from the November 2020 survey. <clears throat> and so we see huge support for things like buying energy efficient products and appliances, walking and cycling instead of using a car, um, limit, limiting the amount of flying we do, reducing the amount of meat in our diets, etc., um, and by the way, this compares to 73%, so fewer than, than um, these proportions who 
support the COVID restrictions. So even though most people supported that, even more support many of these, these climate change measures. So we do have actually quite strong support and that was maintained or, or that grew during the pandemic. But I think the key conclusion here really is that while lockdown disruption did create some low carbon habits um, and some of those appeared to um, be maintained after restrictions were lifted, some of them people had good intentions, but maybe didn't always follow through. The key thing was they do need to be locked in with these upstream measures that I talked about earlier. They need the appropriate infrastructure incentives. They need a shift in norms to be able to actually lock in these things that, that people had started to do. And, and I think what the previous slide shows is that actually a lot of the policies that would create uh, that supportive environment are actually um, supported by most of the, the public, actually. So that's that's encouraging that we, we have people experimenting with these things and we have support for um, locking in many of these things in the longer term. So just to sum up, um, as I've mentioned, social and behavioural change uh, is it has to be transformative if we're going to be uh, reaching net zero. Government, but also behaviour, behavioural and social change are key to that transformation. We need to engage with people to build a social mandate for bold policies. We need to understand people's values. We need to um, also build in, I think, co-benefits to those policies, which I didn't um, go into, but I think that's critical to building that support. Um, we need multiple interventions. So we need the downstream and the upstream to really build motivation and to enable people to change. And crucially, we need to get the timing right. We need to target interventions to when people's habits are disrupted and COVID-19 has been one example, but there are many others. And um, I'll, I'll leave it there and look forward to your questions. Amazing, thank you so much, Lorraine. That was fascinating. And it's so great to see the data and how it's actually spanning out across time, which is something we often don't have the luxury of looking at in terms of behavior research. So it's really good to actually see longitudinal sort of data there. Um, I have a question which sort of jumps off from how you concluded which is actually we do need government and we do need sort of large scale buy-in. And I was wondering, is this a good moment to get political? Because if we really need social transformation, it does involve necessarily engaging with power relationships that exist in marketplaces with the government, um, the views of your MP and whether that reflects your views, whether you trust big organizations to do timely actions or whether you think they're greenwashing. And as you yourself have seen and shown that there's a lot of support across the public, at least based on the survey data and based on things like how many people show up for protests. So do you think actually there's a risk of delaying action by focusing on lifestyle and, and less on politics and less on like, say, particular political parties or players um, at the risk of politicizing the issue? So what do you, do you feel it's a good time to get political or is it better to actually just focus on behaviors which might not have a huge impact, but are acceptable? Uh, oh yeah, great question. Lots, lots in there. Um, I think one of the interesting things that we're finding is that the the public support for net zero policies is probably most strongly influenced by people's political values, their their political ideology. So left and right, or conservative voter, or you know, Labour voter, etc. And the and the greatest support seems to be from people on the left or centre politically, partly because I think they don't have so much of a problem of the idea of government intervening in terms of behaviour change and and intervening in business and and other things. Um, so uh, that is fundamentally then a challenge when we have uh, a party in power who doesn't like the idea of intervening in, in uh, people's lives and at the you know, then the net zero strategy was very explicit about that. We don't want to be intervening in uh, uh, people's lives and we don't want to be because there was an assumption that that means that there would be a reduction in quality of life. I think that was what that was where the problem lay is that there was an, that they there was this equation of changing people's behavior means that people will have to give up things that they care about. There will be sacrifice and, and people will be worse off and that will be politically unpopular. And I think a lot of the evidence, and there's a brilliant paper by Kreutzig uh, recently who looked at actually the co-benefits of climate change mitigation. 
um, and found that actually the vast majority have co-benefits for people's well-being and for the wider society and economy, et cetera. And actually, there's very few measures to mitigate climate change that have um, negative sort of side effects for, for all of those things. It's actually generally you get win-wins. Um, and so I think that's a key thing maybe to try to maybe convey to um, whoever is in power, actually, that we're talking about, you know, regrowing the economy, we're talking about green jobs, we're also talking about um, healthy streets and, and neighbourhoods and accessibility and, and all sorts of things that actually should be important to whoever is in power and who, you know, and whoever you vote for and, and, and your own political views. So, um, I think that for me, I think the co-benefits reframing is one of the key things to actually trying to cut across the political divide. Um, but yeah, I think I think there's there's a lot of politics in here. And so I think it's important to recognize that. And, and that's how we can communicate better. So co-benefits could be a foot in the door in a way to, to get people to listen and think about where they're willing to say compromise values or what the opportunities are to actually move forward. I think so. And I, the second question is sort of, linked up to the types of behaviors that you um, looked at. I was thinking that a lot of your actions, which sort of people say they want to stick to, tend to be actions which involve time. <laughs> so, and not necessarily market transactions. So you, you noticed the reduction in shopping. So there have been some policy proposals like a four day work week, for instance. Do you think that there are implications in terms of those policies because it makes more time available for people to engage in actions which are less carbon intensive because maybe they're not you know transacting or consuming less in that sense i think you've hit the nail on the head there i think the reason why people were able to do many of the things that they did during the pandemic and, and we've been doing work with scottish government that's very qualitative around the impacts of the of the pandemic on people's lifestyles and it is the time factor uh, and linked to that i think location as well so being in the house and so actually having access to the fridge and being a bit more aware of when stuff's going off, but also having the time during your lunch break to, to prepare food yourself. Um, so actually you don't have to get food on the go and you don't have to generate all that kind of packaging from, from that uh, as well. So yeah, absolutely. Having a bit more time then frees up our ability to not just have the, the, the most you know convenience, but maybe higher impact sort of um, consumption. Um, and I think, you know, I have only started to look at the evidence of around four day weeks, but I, it doesn't seem to be straightforward in terms of the impact that has on people's consumption patterns. So I think, I think it has a huge amount of promise, actually, because it does seem like if you could free people up a, a little bit from being in the office all the time, then, uh, or at least being at work all the time, then uh, that, that's got to be a good thing. It doesn't seem like it's quite so straightforward, but I think there's something very exciting there that probably some more work needs to be done on. That's a whole new research project. Um, amazing, thank you. So I've got loads of questions actually. Um, I'm gonna start with the first one, which is Karen's question, which around public transportation. So if public transportation systems are free or low cost, are they more widely used by users? So basically are cost barriers um, important? And I guess, how can we link that up to moments of change? Is that a, a way, is there an opportunity there, I guess? Yeah, so I mean, I'm not an economist, I should definitely just caveat my answer. But I think, yeah, cost barriers are, are often cited as the one of the biggest ones. Cost and convenience really are, are often the biggest barriers for people to change in their behaviour. Um, and so, you know, it, most people care about climate change. So it's not even that you really need to motivate people um, in terms of, you know, change their attitudes. It's really about those more practical things. So absolutely reducing the cost of public transport uh, would be a, a really big step forwards. Um, mm -hmm. But yeah, certainly linking it to the moments of change um, and to the, the evidence that I am aware of around kind of smarter, smarter travel towns, mm -hmm. um, what they found was that it's not enough just to improve uh, sustainable travel options, but you also need to disincentivize car use. And that comes down to things like, you know, maybe congestion charging or reducing the availability of parking or pedestrianization or reallocating road space. So there's, you know, like half the road is for bikes and only half of it is for cars. You know, the more you can inconvenience, inconvenience people around sort of car use and make that less attractive, mm -hmm. but at the same time, make sustainable travel options more attractive, partly through cost, but maybe convenience things as well. 
that you need, I think you need both of those. You need the, the sort of the carrot and the stick. And that is partly to do with habit breaking as well, because you can make the buses absolutely fantastic and they're incredibly reliable and they're really cheap or free. But if nobody is actually trying them, then they're not going to know how amazing they are compared to getting in the car. So you do need to break the car use habit as well as providing those brilliant alternatives so that people have something good to get onto. And when they try it, they stick with it. So I think you need you need both of those things. Yeah, I totally agree. I think it's also a good opportunity in the context of COVID when states are replanning big investments, et cetera, mm-hmm. where that sort of city level planning can really play a role. This is a question which is actually about what disruption is, which might be helpful as well. It's from Kezao. Do we know that if there's a higher degree of disruption, there are higher chances that we can influence behavior? So are more extreme events rather than, you know, mild, moderate life cycle changes mm-hmm. more impactful? I, that's exactly the sort of question that we're trying to address in our research, actually. So we're, we're going in with the hypothesis that, yes, that is the case, that the more disruptive then the more likely you are to dis- the more likely you are to break multiple habits. So you know that maybe it isn't only about your travel habits, but maybe it's also your food and your everything else. And so the more that you can kind of because we sort of, although this isn't necessarily a sort of traditionally a psychological way of looking at it, it's maybe a more sort of social practices or sociological way of looking at it. Is like all these activities we do are often kind of interlinked. There are sort of bundles of practices. And so that's why, you know, yeah, coming back to the the pandemic example is like kind of when you get people to work from home, it's not just about like they're not driving to work anymore, but also they're they're having to prepare food in different ways. And maybe they're consuming, you know, they're buying their stuff in different ways and maybe they're interacting with people in different ways. And there's there's a whole range of things that are changing. Mm -hmm. Um, And so actually, yeah, I think the more disruptive then the more that, that an event is or a moment of change is the more potential you have to reshape multiple behaviors. Um, So I think, yes, I think that we're only just beginning to kind of get evidence on that. So, Yeah, I guess it also might depend on whether you have the facilities to rebuild. I'm thinking of something like a typhoon or disaster you might end up losing, but you might also have the opportunities to rebuild in a different way. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Amazing. This one's from Cynthia, who's in from BIC, BCIT, Vancouver, Canada. Question for Lorraine, where psychologically healthy behaviors overlap with environmentally friendly behaviors, should we be focusing on the health or the environmental element? So this is on co-benefits, I guess. Yeah. Uh, well, great question. I mean, I think in terms of communicating those things, um, you know, I think and actually I think you did some work on this too, right, Ganga? Um, like actually we found that when we did this for food, that actually communicating the health uh, benefits and the environmental benefits of reducing red meat consumption was a little bit more effective than uh, communicating either one of those things um, by itself. So I think the more you can actually talk about the multiple benefits of um, changes, I think probably as I, as I understand it, the evidence suggests that actually that can be more persuasive, but it, it does partly depend on your audience. So, you know, for some people talking about the climate benefits of a, of a behavior change might be really persuasive. For more people, probably the health benefits would resonate. And for, and for maybe even more, cost, cost or convenience factors might be even more persuasive. So it depends on the specific behavior and, and the audience that you're talking about that, you know, you need to adjust your message to. But on things like, you know, consumption patterns where we know that actually materialistic lifestyles are negatively correlated with well-being um, and greener lifestyles generally, people tend to be sort of happier and more satisfied with their lives and more fulfilled. The more we can communicate those things, actually, I think around well-being benefits, I think those probably are going to resonate more than just saying there are some environmental benefits of doing this. Yeah, you're right. We found that maybe there's a likelihood of positive spillovers on subsequent pro-social actions as well. So in the context of can multiple benefits be more persuasive, it might also affect the openness people have to other subsequent lifestyle changes. But we haven't, it was difficult to study that again, because mapping out real behaviors was a challenge, but that's what we found at least in the short run, um, which is sort sort of echoing the evidence as well. This is one from Hannah. What about bad behaviors, like socially bad behaviors um, as a result of the uh, you know pandemic? And she gives the example of conspiracy theories, but we could 
you know, there, there are other examples of, you know, being hesitant or in-group bias because you're prioritizing vaccines for yourself rather than actually being more pro-social. So what about those sorts of negative, unintentional, but negative outcomes? Yeah, um, that's a really good point. And I mean, uh, in terms of the environmental benefits of the, of the pandemic, we've definitely seen a reduction of emissions in the short term, but then actually, you know, the plastic and the material waste uh, generated by masks and various other things has been really significant. So it's definitely, there are pros and cons in, in all aspects, I think. But um, uh, I mean, there, there was some great research that um, CAST and Climate Outreach did uh, recently, which looked at you know the, the the experiences of the pandemic and the lessons people drew for their understanding of the environment but also their understanding of community and other people and working together and one of the things really was this sense of like working with people and that actually people really did feel um a sense that their communities came together and that actually they kind of thought well maybe there is something that we could do around climate change that that would involve involve communities working together and so the, the sort of recommendation from that that work was actually let's focus on those kind of that sense of community efficacy community kind of um, coming together and and the and the and the support and well-being that people actually um it found through that um so yeah I think there are probably lots of negative sort of examples that we can cite from the pandemic but I think we've tried to focus on some of the more positive things and the you know so how what can we learn from this and how can we then sort of build okay. on this experience actually so perfect this is one from ollie chaplin um who's doing our msc with respect to things like foreign holidays versus commuting or buying a heat pump do you have reflections on the well-being effects of reducing specific behaviors so this is sort of speaking also to the sacrifice inconvenience concern and quality of life i guess um, yeah, and again, just just to reference that Kreutzig paper, who actually looked at loads of different mitigation measures and their their various different um, uh, benefits, including yeah, well being benefits. So he he's done a very robust um, analysis of that, I think. But um, you know, some of some of these behaviour changes have very clear health and well being benefits, and so walking and cycling, for example, active travel has health mm -hmm. and mental well being benefits um yes yeah, sustainable diets tend to be healthier as well um and um lower consumption levels material consumption tends to be uh correlated with well-being as well so i think a lot of these behaviors do i think yeah re regarding kind of heat pumps um I mean, I suppose there's the sort of comfort side of things where, you know, if you're kind of physically in a drafty home or in a yeah, poorly heated home, then you know, there, are, there are going to be physical health benefits there. Um, although I don't know about sort of wider well-being benefits so much. But um, yeah, I, I, I think it will vary definitely across the different behaviours and there will be different barriers as well. And so cost being a really big barrier for a lot of these things or a lot, a lot of the technologically um the, the innovation type behavior changes so you know electric vehicles as well being another one but i think the more uh, maybe the more technologically uh focused ones i maybe there are fewer well-being benefits than the more sort of lifestyle change ones i i guess if i can generalize so yeah but it, it's it certainly varies yeah it, it's so contingent on the action itself in that micro context and I think this is a sort of related question, but it comes back a bit to the politics from Samuel, which is almost all the new cycle lanes and low traffic neighborhoods are being delivered by labor councils with young politicians. Have you looked at how to get more young people to get into politics? Basically, like, what can young people do in a way? Um, a po like politics and taking political action seems to be a salient route at the moment. It might also be because people's life chances when you're younger are more fragile because you might not be able to own a home or you might be working in, in jobs with insecure employment. So I guess for young people, what can they do? And, and is politics a route? Yeah, I think so. Um, uh, yeah, I, I didn't know that. I, that's a really interesting observation, actually. I hadn't realised that it was also kind of younger counsellors who were taking these steps. But I think that, I guess that matches with... Um, the broader evidence in, in as far as there tends to be kind of greater environmental or in climate change concern amongst young people. Um, that age gap has narrowed. We know that it used to be very much a young person thing, but actually now 
all age group, a majority in all age groups do express strong concern about climate change. Um, but you do see age differences in terms of the specific kind of policy measures and, and support for those. So that, that, that does continue. But um, yeah, I guess in general, what can young people do? I think, you know, there's, there's, there's evidence as well that there may be sort of maybe more climate anxiety amongst young people. And that part of that is a frustration that government is not doing more and that they're, you know, in some cases, maybe they, you know, young people who aren't old enough to vote and, and you maybe don't have professional positions, etc, just don't have as much influence. So there is that understandable kind of frustration that manifests in sort of in anxiety. And um, that that is a that is a concern. But the more I think people can come together as groups, actually, the more they may feel that they can exert influence. And that sort of seems to be where um, as I understand it, the sort of um, dealing with climate anxiety, it, that's one route to actually sort of turning that into something quite positive, getting together as a group, feeling that there's something that you can do and actually seeing seeing evidence for that. So, um, yeah, take, taking action, taking political action. And, and I think all those five roles I mentioned, you know, the consumer, citizen, organisational participant, etc. you know, we all have those roles to some extent, um, the role model one is completely universal. So you can always have a conversation with somebody. Uh, you can always just set a good example. You can always just try and influence people in, in very mundane, everyday ways. So that, that at the very least is something that everybody can do. Yeah, and no, that's absolutely right. I'm, I, we have four minutes and I'm wondering if I could take two questions here, <laughs> but let's see if we're super efficient. I think we've been pretty efficient so far. So let's see if we can continue. So this is from... Aimir Fanthorpe, who, who asked about the legal angle. How do you think legal frameworks can influence behavior change, especially things like environmental law? And what is the role, I guess, not just in terms of individuals, but also in terms of industry? And are there any insights for moments of change here? Um, good question. So, I mean, I guess I would probably just come back to that um, systematic evidence re review that we that we recently published, where we certainly found that that government in general, policy in general, is, is absolutely fundamental to, to transformation and to, to decarbonisation. Um, and part of that is about regulation and laws. Um, and so that's like the most effective thing you can do, basically. Uh, you know, if you sort of think about a sort of spectrum of like law, changing laws down to just giving people some information, um, it's very politically attractive just to give some people some information, but actually that's about the least effective thing you can do. Changing, of course, you know, regulating is, is, is going to be much more effective, but you do need a social mandate. You do need a mandate to do that from the public. So there's, there's some uh, engagement required for that. But yes, laws, legal stuff, vital and can provide a moment of change, I suppose. Like as soon as you change the law, then you can you, that's one way of disrupting habits. So it's um, yeah, very powerful. This is actually immediately related to what you said, which is um, from Barbara, the net zero scrutiny group MPs say my constituents didn't vote to be poorer. So how can you tackle willful information where this is about the mandate and, and the appetite really? Yeah, yeah. So we've seen a sort of shift, you know, there aren't really climate skeptics anymore, because even the net zero scrutiny group says they believe in climate change and, and decarbonisation, but it's about it, it's shifted to saying we can't afford to do these things. And, um, and, and I think it's important to actually take that quite seriously because actually when you look at who is amongst the public is is most opposed to net zero policies it's people who are on the lowest incomes as well as people who are on the right of center politically so it is two, two of those things but um it's people that yeah are, are genuinely concerned that i can't afford a heat pump and i can't yeah i i need my car to get to work and there are real reasons why people are are genuinely concerned about these these things being threatens thre threatening their 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 way of life and their identity and all the rest um, so I do think it is important to listen to those concerns, but we need to also, I think, recognize those, those co-benefits I talked about. So yes, it is, there are going to be costs associated with the net zero transition and, and to be transparent about that, but to say actually not to get, have a net zero transition is going to be more expensive and it's going to be more dangerous and risky and all the other things that happen if you just let climate change happen un unfettered. So yeah, we have to find ways of having a fair, just transition that acknowledges that people on lower incomes need to be able to be supported to have these things, do these things too. So 
but but yeah I think it is um I suppose recognizing where there may be some justifiable concerns there and, and, and trying to work with people as far as possible and having maybe a, 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 an approach based on people's concerns and that's where things like actually creating opportunities thinking about the needs of different groups are really important yeah amazing um we're actually on time it's 6 p.m um i just want to say another big thank you and if you could have like one wish lever lever to pull to say this is what i think we should do based on the psychological insights from the moments of change literature what would that be oh uh based on the moments of change stuff oh gosh um that as we are transitioning out of the pandemic that we just put in place some of these really quick win policies that nobody would even object to like public provisioning of vegetarian and vegan foods in schools and hospitals and things and you know some of these things that like would not even get any public uh you know opposition so just use this as a like fresh start effect you know let's just let's improve people's well-being and do this stuff right now and actually your research is really optimistic there because it shows this concern this support and there's a willingness actually in this moment yep amazing thank you so much Lorraine and thank you so much for um, tuning in everyone. Um, Big apologies, I couldn't take all the questions. Um, There are some fantastic ones in there. So my apologies for those who I didn't take, but big thank you to Lorraine to um, coming, addressing everything so efficiently and also the organizers, Matthew, Ginny, Gemma from LSE and LSE events more generally. Um, Have a fantastic evening, everyone. Thank you so much. I'm just gonna give a big virtual applause. It's just me, but I'm sure everyone is applauding with me. Thank Have you a great so evening, <laughs> Bye. Thank you for listening. You can subscribe to the LSE Events Podcast on your favourite podcast app and help other listeners discover us by leaving a review. Visit lse.ac.uk forward slash events to find out what's on next. We hope you join us at another LSE event soon.